Welcome to Christ Chapel College, the college outreach of Christ Chapel Bible Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We hope everyone experiences what Jesus calls abundant life. So we unapologetically point to Him as the source of life and joy. If you're a college student in the Fort Worth area, we'd be stoked to connect with you. Find out more at ChristChapelCollege.org and on Instagram at ChristChapelCollege. Good morning. How are we doing? Good deal. All right, well, let's go uh, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We'll be hanging out uh, there this morning. So uh, one Thursday afternoon during my senior year of college, I find out that my Friday cl- classes are canceled. So all of a sudden, I'm now the proud owner of a three-day weekend. And I remember it being just kind of a long week. I was tired. And so I thought, man, I can't wait for the next three days. The next three days are going to be incredible. I can do whatever I want to do. And so I began kind of plotting through uh, what I want to do. And so there was a basketball game that, that night, and a buddy of mine said, hey, let's go watch the game, and then we'll just go figure stuff out. And right as I'm walking into the stadium, I put my hand on the door, uh, my phone rings. And it's my mom, and my mom's not, like, in the habit of calling me on Thursday nights in college, you know what I mean? And so uh, I'm like, oh, this is weird. And so I step away, and I answer the phone, and she's crying. And again, like, I'm not great with women, but I do know that a crying woman is rarely a good sign. And so I, uh, I'm like, mom, like, what's, what's happening? And through tears, she says, Josh, your dad's aorta just ruptured, and we don't know if he's going to make it. And all of a sudden, everything changed. With one phone call, I went from flying high, three-day weekend, not a care in the world, to experiencing a pain that I wasn't ready for. In one moment, with one phone call, my whole world began to unravel. And I tell you that because my guess is that maybe somewhere along the way in this life, maybe you've experienced something similar. Because I think we all come into these moments in life when we experience pain that we're just not ready for. Maybe you've also lost a parent. Maybe you lost a friend to suicide. Maybe you've experienced abuse. Maybe you had to walk through, con- walk through chronic disease or sickness. Maybe you've experienced racism. Maybe you've walked through these things in life that when it hits you, you experienced a pain and a suffering that you just weren't ready for. And when we experience pain like that, when we experience suffering like that, it just weighs on us. It just weighs on us. I mean, it's so hard to navigate that. And I tell you that because in our text today, Paul is going to make a bold, borderline insensitive statement about pain. He's going to make a statement about pain and suffering that if you've ever walked through pain and suffering, you might hear it and think, uh, no, that is not true at all. The longer that I live, the longer I study the word of God, the longer that I walk with Jesus, what I find is that Paul's statement is absolutely true. As bold as it may be, it is absolutely true. And so what I want to do today is I just want to um, read this statement, and I want us to just kind of make a case for why I think this statement about our pain and our suffering is true. My hope in all of this is that today, the Word of God 
drastically changes and drastically shapes the way that you and I view pain and suffering in our world. That when we encounter moments of pain, when we don't quite know what to do, we don't quite know how to navigate it, that the word of God today drastically shapes the rest of your life, the way that you view pain and suffering. So what is this audacious, bold statement that Paul makes? Well, let's read it. It's found in verse 18 of Romans 8, and it's this. It says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's it. This, I think, is one of the most bold statements about pain in all of Scripture. Because what Paul is saying is like, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, your pain, your suffering, it cannot be compared to some future glory that's going to be revealed to us. So if I could just summarize this in one phrase, it'd be that our present sufferings are not equal to future glory. Right? This is kind of the premise that we are going to look at today, is that our present sufferings are not equal to future glory. Now, let me explain or begin to unpack why I think this is such a, a hard concept for us in our culture. We know a lot about present suffering, but we don't know a lot about future glory, right? And we'll begin to understand that here in a, um, a moment. But for us, we understand present suffering. Like a lot of us understand what present suffering entails. Therefore, this statement seems bold, if not insensitive, right? Because what do we know about present suffering? Well, one, we know that it's painful, right? Like it, it hurts. Like if you have ever experienced suffering, like it physically hurts hurts. If you lose someone, it hurts. If you are betrayed, it hurts. If you have sickness or disease, it hurts, right? There's all these things that we suffered through, physically, emotionally, and mentally, spiritually. Like, it hurts. It's just painful, right? But on top of that, um, present sufferings also oftentimes involve shame, especially when, when Paul is writing this, right? Um, there is this, this view in the ancient world that um, pain and suffering was a, essentially a source of divine punishment. That it, that it was the gods or, or God punishing you for something, right? So um, prime example, in John chapter 9, Jesus and his uh, disciples are walking along and they see a guy who is blind. And his disciples ask a, a, a very fascinating question. They say, hey, out of curiosity, who, who sinned? This guy or his parents? Because in their mind, there was no question that his blindness was a result of somebody sinning, right? The only question was, was it this guy or his parents? And Jesus says, no, 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 <laughs> neither. So this, this happened so that the works of God might be revealed in him, and then he heals him, and it's this beautiful story. But the point of that is that in the mind of the disciples, pain and suffering was something that brought shame because surely this was God punishing you for, for something, right? And so in our day and age, while we might not uh, associate pain with or pain and suffering with God punishing us, there, there are certain types of suffering that produce shame, right? Like um, right now, we are in a, a place in our country where millions of people have lost their jobs. And there's something weird in our culture where if you lose a job, if your kind of financial world comes unraveled, even if it's not your fault, even if a pandemic hits and you lose your job, if you have to downsize, if you have to lose, like if you lose your home, that is the type of suffering that produces shame. Even though it's not, not your fault, like it produces shame, right? If, you've, um, if you have a sibling that struggles with uh, drug or alcohol addiction, 
I've walked with people through all that stuff, and, and even though it's not their fault, there's a shame that tends to fall of like, ah, maybe I could have done something better. Maybe I could have done something else, right? And so what oftentimes happens in our pain and suffering, there is shame that is heaped onto an already painful situation, right? And so what we know about present suffering is that it is both painful and can produce shame. So therefore, it is heavy. So in light of that, in light of that, what gives Paul the audacity? What gives Paul the audacity to say that this future glory cannot compare? is not equal to our present sufferings. Well, two things. One, um, Paul was not a stranger to pain and suffering himself. If you read the book of Acts, Paul is well acquainted with pain. I mean, dude just gets run through the ringer, right? So, so, so one, there's a credibility when he talks because he absolutely knows what pain and suffering in this current world looks like. He has felt that, right? So, so one, he does have some credibility. But two, Paul must know something about this future glory that we don't. For this to not be an incredibly insensitive statement, Paul must know something about this future glory that you and I do not know. So in the time that we have for for the next couple moments, I want to unpack what Paul knows about this glory that we don't know. So the first thing is this, let's, let's define what this future glory is, because that's kind of a very churchy sort of word that's, you know, tough to kind of wrap our mind, minds around. So here's how we're going to define it. Future glory in this context is the restoration of that which is broken by the fall. The future glory that Paul is talking about is um, the restoration of all that has been broken by the fall. And here's why we know that. Check out verse 19. Paul goes on to say this. It says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together and the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. All right, so, so Paul makes this audacious claim about, you know, our present sufferings, not comparing to future glory, and then he immediately goes back to the garden. He goes back to the fall and explains It's not comparable because the creation was subjected to futility, meaning the creation was broken. Like something broke. God's kind of created ideal. And ever since that moment, the creation has been longing. It has been groaning for its restoration. It has been groaning and longing for something or someone to come and fix what has been broken by sin. But not just the creation, but we. We have been longing for that same restoration. We just long and groan, waiting for something to fix what's been broken by sin. And so at this point in time, we need to ask two specific questions in in light of this. So so if you take notes, write, write these down. The first question is this. What exactly was broken by the fall? Right, if we are groaning and longing for this restoration, what exactly was broken by the fall? And two, what about its restoration is glorious? 
Right? What about that restoration is so glorious that it can't even compare to our present sufferings that we know are heavy, that we know are painful, right? So, so what was actually broken and what about its restoration is glorious? So but let me begin to answer that first question. Um, two specific things I want to focus on were actually broken in the fall. Um, and the first is this, um, that our relationship with God was broken by the fall. That our relationship with God was broken by the fall. Now, this is where um, people usually focus, right? Because in the garden, we see something specific. We see Adam and Eve um, having perfect fellowship with God, right? That, 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 that they, they walked with God in the garden. They had perfect fellowship with God, unveiled face, like it was incredible. And then sin entered the world. And when they sinned, their response was no longer to boldly, confidently walk with God. Their response was to hide, right? And, and so we have this same pop. Posture. When we sin, what happens is that we tend to hide. We feel a sense of shame, so we hide, right? And so part of this, this, this kind of glorious restoration is that one day, because of what Christ has done, when, when Christ comes and restores, all that's been broken, what happens is that we get to have a right relationship with God once again. That our relationship with God is restored, where we get to approach the throne of God, not with shame, not with hiding, but we get to boldly approach because we are sons and daughters of God. Healed and whole, spotless, blameless, holy, righteous. That's part of what makes this so glorious, is that our relationship was broken by the fall, and through Christ, there will come a day where we get to have full reconciliation, full restoration of that relationship. So, so that's the first thing. But the second thing is this. The cultural mandate was broken by the fall. The cultural mandate was broken by the fall. Um, we don't talk about this quite as much, so let me kind of like get nerdy and explain what this means. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see what is called the cultural mandate. It's this um, calling that God places on mankind of, of, of what our role is here on earth. And, and so uh, Genesis 1, 26, it says this. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, so this right here is part of the cultural mandate, right? And that our calling is to have dominion, right? Now, let me clarify. The word dominion is not the same thing as the word domineering. Right, oftentimes we confuse those, we use them as synonyms, but they're drastically different words. To be domineering is to be overbearing. To be domineering is to be oppressive in the way that we lead. But to have dominion is about having a level of authority. It, it's about stewarding authority well, stewarding authority in a way that brings cultural flourishing. And so what God's calling man to do in this verse is to say, hey, your job as my image bearers, as the, my representatives on this earth, you are to have dominion. You are to steward the authority that I have given you over all the created order in order that everything flourishes, that everything has life, everything has joy, that everything flourishes. But when sin entered the world, when the world broke, when the fall happened, there was a reversal. There was a reversal where, where all of a sudden, instead of us having dominion over creation, instead of us ruling over creation, when the fall took place, creation now has the ability to rule over us. Creation now has the ability to rule over 
us. In fact, um, Paul has already made reference to this in Romans 1. And so I want to read this because I want you to see how cool the Bible is and how it all fits together. This is Romans 1. It says this. It says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature or the creation rather than the creator, right? So, so notice the exact same verbiage, right? I mean, when was the last time you saw creeping things in the Bible, right? Um, what, what Paul is saying is he's making reference that, that our call initially was to have dominion over creation, to rule over creation. But when the fall happened, something broke, and now we allow the creation to rule over us. We worship and serve the creation, right? And so while we personally don't worship images or statues of the created things, we most definitely fall into the trap of allowing creation to rule over us. And I tell you all of that because most of the pain and suffering that we experience on this planet is because we have allowed creation to rule over us instead of us ruling over creation. So a couple examples. Let's take money. Money is a good gift from God. Right? It is a good creation. With money, we can provide. With money, we can bless and serve. With money, we can advance the kingdom of God. There is so much good that can be done when we steward our money well, when we have dominion over our money. Yet, it is so easy for money to have dominion over us. Where, where we are called to rule over our money, it is so easy to allow money to rule over us. And some of you know the pain and suffering when that happens. Right? For, for some of you, you come from families that are incredibly well off. Right? You have never lacked for anything. You have never wanted for, for anything. You, you can go to HG and just make it rain, right? Like, I mean, you have, you have like unbelievable access. Some of you have all the financial security in the world, but you don't know your father. Or at least your father doesn't really know you. Some of you have all the financial stability in the world, but your family is so shaky. Your family is so broken. Why? Because someone along the way has allowed money to have dominion over them instead of them having dominion over it. And you now feel the consequences. You now feel some of the pain that comes along when we allow creation to rule over us instead of us ruling over it. Right? Or take food. I am a firm believer that God's greatest gift to humanity is food. I, I just love food. Like, have, have you ever thought about the fact, I mean, God is so kind and gracious to us. Have you ever thought about the fact that God could have allowed us or created us in a way where we fueled our bodies without getting to enjoy flavors, right? Like, how kind is God that he allows us to nourish our body, bodies, fuel our bodies, and still taste what queso tastes like, Right? Now, granted, that's not nourishing, but, like, you understand the point, right? Like, there's all this joy that comes from understanding, man, this is a good gift from God. We have flavors and aromas and all this other stuff, and it brings joy. Like, food is a good creation that we are called to rule over. Yet, how easy is it for us to allow food to rule over us? How easy is it to take a good piece of God's creation and use it to, to medicate what we feel, to use it to medicate really difficult times in our life. On the flip side, how easy th is it to become enslaved to counting calories, to become enslaved to, to, to what food can do to us? 
right, that's, that's heavy stuff. And you can fill in the blank with whatever it is, but we all have these kind of experiences where we understand that we can so easily allow the creation to rule over us. That we can allow money or sex or food or alcohol or good grades, reputation, what people think of us. Like the Proverbs are so clear that when people say our name, that should be a delight, that our reputation is so important, that how easy is it that we can allow our reputation or what people think of us just to rule us, to have dominion over us. And there's so much pain and brokenness that can come along with that. And so when Paul talks about this future glory, when Paul says that this future glory can't compare to our present sufferings, what he's saying is that there is coming a day. Because of what Christ has done, there is coming a day when the cultural mandate will be reversed. Where you and I will rule and reign with Christ as co-heirs over creation and we will have dominion over it instead of it having dominion over us. And all the pain and brokenness of this world will disappear. So when Paul says that this future glory can't even compare to our present sufferings, he's not minimizing your present sufferings. He's saying that all the things that cause your present sufferings will disappear. And that's why this moment is glorious. Because all the things that hurt, all the things that cause pain, those things will pale in comparison when everything has been redeemed and restored. So we groan, we long, we wait for this to happen. Now, for some of us, we might hear that and think, man, that's, that's great, that's cool. I mean, I love what Christ has done. I love that there is this future glory, this future restoration of all things. But we don't know when that's going to be. Like, like, that could be another 40 years. It's like, what do I do in the meantime? What do I do as I long for this future glory? What do we do in the meantime? Because these present sufferings are not going away. Well, I think we do one specific thing we learn how to wait well. I think we learn how to wait well. And what's interesting about waiting is that in our culture, um, waiting feels passive. Waiting feels lazy. Waiting feels unproductive. Waiting feels like we're just sitting there twiddling our thumbs until God shows up and restores all things. And there's something in us that says, man, I, I don't just want to sit here and wait. And I get that. But I think there is a way to wait in a productive way, right? All throughout scripture, God calls his people over and over to wait. He says, I'm going to move. I'm going to act. I'm going to do something incredible, but I need you to just wait. And there is a way to wait that is lazy, and there's also a way to wait that is productive. And so I want to close by giving you two applications of what it looks like to wait well. And the first way that we wait well is by embracing speechlessness. We wait well by embracing speechlessness. And I'll show you what I mean. Check out verse 26. He says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So what Paul's been saying in this text is, is he's, he's been talking about this groaning. He says the, the creation groans. 
we groan. We are groaning and longing for that day when Christ comes and restores and makes all things new. When we, we're groaning for this future glory. And here he says, and the Spirit groans alongside us. But not just that, the Spirit of God groans alongside us. The Spirit of God takes our groanings and makes them into something beautiful. He, he uses our groanings. He intercedes for us when we don't have words. When we are just groaning and tired and exhausted and don't have words, he intercedes and takes those groanings before our God and turns them into prayers. And it is a, a beautiful, beautiful idea of one of the ways that the Holy Spirit ministers to us in our pain. But my fear is that we don't allow the Holy Spirit to minister to us in this way very often. Because somewhere along the way in Christian circles, we have come to buy this idea that we must have an answer at all times. We must have something to say at all times. And so we find ourselves saying stuff that are like, man, yeah, uh, my family is a wreck. But hey, you know, God is good. And I have never experienced pain like this ever. But hey, you know what? God is so faithful. Man, I've never been stabbed in the back like this. But hey, you know what? God is in control. And while those are true, while God is good, while God is faithful, while God is in control, somewhere along the way, we've bought this idea that we always have to tie up our pain with some nice theological bow. But the more that we understand the gravity of this broken world, when we understand the gravity of what present sufferings entail, there should be moments when we just groan, when we just don't have the words, where we can say, man, I have never felt pain like this in my life. And I don't know what to say. Man, I have never hurt like this. I've never felt this before. And I don't even know what to pray. Like, I don't even know what to say. Like, I don't, I don't have anything to say right now. I'm, I'm just hurting. We've lost the ability just to hurt, just to groan. In fact, it's one of the things that I love about the Psalms right? Um, the psalmists are, are, are so, uh, so unashamed in the way that they process grief. So in fact, Psalm 77 says, says this. He says, when I remember God, I moan. I, I groan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. Right? This is a, a psalmist who is in pain. He is, he is honest. And he's saying, man, I, I just groan. I faint. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. Like you have to hold my eyelids open. I'm in so much pain that I don't even have words. And somewhere along the way, we've lost the ability to just be speechless. We've lost the ability just to groan and allow the Holy Spirit to take our groanings before the Lord. So if you're in the room, and, and maybe you're actually in a place of pain right now. Maybe you walked in the door and you were barely holding things together. If you're in pain right now, or maybe this is a sermon that God's going to use in your life in six months or a year or five years or 20 years, my hope is that we have the ability to just groan, to just hurt. When we don't have the words, that we're okay with not having the words, that we understand that the Spirit of God will intercede for us, will take our groanings before the Lord and minister to us when we are just speechless. While there are so many true characteristics about our God that he is good, that he is in control, that he is 
faithful. My hope is that we have the theological perspective that we're okay with not tying a nice, little, ni- a nice, neat little bow on our pain, but we can just groan and allow the Spirit to minister to us. So that's the first way that we wait well, that we embrace speechlessness. But here's the second way. We redefine good. We redefine what the word good means. Look with me at verse 28. It says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And for those who are, who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Um, There is a um, kind of an old logical proposition that people have used as a way to try to disprove the existence of God. And it goes like this. It says that if God were all-powerful, he could stop pain. If God were all-good, he would stop pain. Pain exists. Therefore, God is neither all-powerful nor all-good, right? And people have used that for like a long time to kind of essentially explain that, that God can't exist because pain exists, right? But there's one foundational flaw in that argument, and it's the line that says that if God were all-good, he would stop pain. Because from a common-sense standpoint, we understand that good things can come from pain, right? Like, like that, that logic... Um, is centered on this idea that there is nothing purposeful, there's nothing good about pain. Yet we know from a common sense standpoint that that's, that that's not true, right? Like, like a surgeon will literally cut you open, will break apart your body in order to save your life, right? We don't think twice about that, right? Like a, um, a parent will, uh, if their child is running into the street, right, or uh, to put it in your context, if your drunk fraternity brother is running into the street, right, like you, you let go and you grab him and bring him back, right, even if it hurts, like you tackle him if you need to. Why? Because you understand that the pain produces good, that there is good in the pain. And so Romans eight twenty eight and 29 is, is backing that up. It's letting us know what we already know to be true. That, that good can come from pain, right? He says, he says for, for God works all things together for good. But the kicker is that he gets really specific about what that good is, right? He says, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And then he gets real specific about defining what good is. He says, for those who he foreknew, he also predestined, and this is huge, to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The phrase firstborn among many brothers seems a little odd in, in our context, but it's a phrase that, that's a, essentially pointing to a status, right? Um, in this culture, uh, daughters didn't get an inheritance, only sons did. And if you were the firstborn son, you got the majority of the inheritance. So to be the firstborn son, especially among many brothers, meant that you got more than everybody else. And so what he's saying is that the good that God is working, the good is not some, some kind of ethereal, oh yeah, all things are going to work out. He's saying, no, the good is that there's coming a day when you will be conformed to the image of Christ. You will look like Christ. You will be made like Christ in order that you might receive an inheritance. 
As Ben talked about last week, we have been adopted into the family of God because of what Christ has done on our behalf. And this is the future glory. That, that there's coming a day when all of our pain, all of our suffering will cease to exist and you and I will function as co-heirs with Christ, that we will receive an inheritance, that we will be sons and daughters that have the same status as a firstborn among brothers, that we get this inheritance and that we rule and reign with Christ over creation the way that it was designed to be. That all that has been broken by sin will be restored and on that day that will be glorious. And that is how we define good. That God is working all things together for good, that we are working toward this future glory. Now here's the hard part. The Holy Spirit has to give you the eyes to see that as good. Because that is not the definition of good that our culture has. Our culture hears that definition of good and says, are you serious? That's the good? That there's some future glory. My sister can't walk. That's the good. That we get an inheritance, that we rule and reign, that we're co-heirs with Christ. Yeah, my dad left when we were seven. That's not, that's, that's not good. And if it is, it's not good enough. And it's valid. This is a drastically different definition of good. My prayer is that today the Holy Spirit is using this text to open our eyes, to redefine good, to better understand what good actually entails. That there is a future glory that cannot even be compared to our present sufferings. Because make no mistake, that is good. It's good. Um, The night that I got the call, I hopped in my car and I drove home and my dad was in the hospital for a few days and uh, when Sunday morning came I was tired of being around uh, doctors and heart monitors and people who meant well but said really stupid things and so I said you know I just want to go worship I I just want to go to church and just worship and so I go and I walk in the door and I sit down and the first song that we sing was an old Hillsong song uh, called You Hold Me Now And let me just read to you a couple of the opening lines of the song. It says, On that day when I see all that you have for me, when I see you face to face surrounded by your grace, where the streets are made of gold in your presence healed and whole, no weeping, no hurt, no pain, no suffering, you hold me now, no darkness, no sick, no lame, no hiding, you hold me now. And as we began to sing that song, I I felt the Lord begin to prepare me. And I felt the Lord begin to prepare me for what was about to take place. And he didn't prepare me by by telling me that there was a future glory. He prepared me by showing me what that future glory looked like. That I was about to lose my father, but that in a moment, My father would no longer be laid up in a hospital bed with tubes in his nose. He would be face to face with the creator of the universe, healed and whole. No more pain, no more suffering, no more hurting. And as I began to sing this song, just thinking about what this future glory looked like, I just 
began to cry. I was that dude just weeping in the middle of church. It was super awkward. But I, I just began just to weep. And right as the song ended, my phone buzzed, and I looked, and I got a text that said, hey, things have taken a turn for the worse, and we lost him. But I look back on that day, and when I think about what that season was like, although it was incredibly painful, although it was a suffering that I never felt, and it was a suffering that I wasn't ready for as a senior in college, there was a, a hope. And there was a peace that marked that season because God had shown me what this future glory looked like. That, that through Christ, there's going to be a restoration of all things. And in that moment, I could think about what Paul says, and I could agree, and I could say, man, I'm convinced that the present sufferings of this world cannot compare to the glory that is to be revealed to us. My hope and my prayer is that the Holy Spirit gives you and I the eyes to see that that is true. Let me pray. Father, you are, um, to be honest and not to be cliche, you are good and you are faithful and you are in control. But God, I also know that there are people in this room who have experienced things that they never wanted to experience. There are people in this room who have been blindsided by experiences that they're still trying to process through. Father, in those moments in time, it is so confusing, so hard, so difficult to, to navigate the ups and downs of all that. God, my hope to this morning is that the truth of your word speaks to us. That we can truly rest in the truth that our God is not indifferent to our pain, that, that because of what Christ has done, that because Christ suffered for us, our suffering and our pain will come to an end. So God, may we be a people that, that grieve well, to learn how to groan well, that wait well. Looking to you, understanding the good is that you are coming to restore all that's been broken by the fall. God, we love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.